Good morning, loved ones. I'm so happy that we have this time that we can share together. If you're just joining us for the first time, my name is Charles and I'm the pastor of Hickory Rock Baptist Church here in Lewisburg, North Carolina. And it is my prayer that our time spent together in God's word will help you in your walk with Christ. Won't you join me for a word of prayer and then we'll look at our text today from uh, Acts chapters 6 and 7. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Christ. And Father, I pray that you will give us now open ears and open hearts, that we will be receptive to your word, that we will humbly sit under its authority, and that we will take your word, Lord, and hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, I pray and ask now that you will just empower us through your Holy Spirit to be the people that you have called us to be, and that you will empower us and equip us to follow you more humbly, more faithfully, more joyfully and more obediently. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today, loved ones, we're going to be looking at the second half of Acts chapter 6 and then kind of jumping ahead a little bit to the end of Acts chapter 7. And we're going to be doing this because we're looking at the bookends of a very important passage here in Acts 6. But I'll say more about that in just a moment. To kind of get the ball rolling today, I want to tell you about something that happened several years ago. Back in 1956, a young U.S. senator Senator did that thing that all politicians do when they begin thinking about running for the office of presidency and they want to get their names out in the public square. This young senator wrote a book and that book became known as Profiles and Courage and that young senator was of course John F. Kennedy who would go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for his work on that book. But in Profiles and Courage, Senator Kennedy discussed eight examples, eight profiles of other U.S. senators from uh, history who at make or break moments in U.S. history broke with their party and broke with their constituents to do not what the party wanted them to do, but to do what was truly the right thing. They took a stand for what was right despite the risk it ran to their career. And for taking such stands, Senator Kennedy said in his book that these men demonstrated courage. And loved ones, I do not wish to teach us today about how to be courageous. Today, I wish to teach us about something even greater, how to be Christ-like. But I cannot teach you how to be Christ-like and how to be willing to lay your life down for Christ when I have never been asked to do so myself. For thankfully for us, we have in the text before us today a profile in Christ-likeness, an example of a person, of Stephen, who sought not only to follow Christ, but to be like Christ. And as a result, Stephen ended up being like Christ, both in his life and in his death. And because of this, the story of Stephen is one that we must remember. We must carry it with us. Because Stephen reminds us that we are not called simply to follow Christ, but that we are called to be like Christ. And the more we seek to be like Christ in this world, loved ones, we must understand that we should also expect to be treated more like Christ by this world. It's as Jesus himself reminded us in John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
So as we seek loved ones to be faithful to Christ and to be Christ-like in our time and place, we must steal our resolve, we must steal our obedience, and we must learn from every example who has come before us. And so today, loved ones, let us walk through this text together. Let us see an example of Christ-likeness. Let us identify hostility to Christ-likeness. And lastly, most importantly, let us see the price of Christ-likeness. And from all of this, let us learn how we are to live and, if need be, die for our commitment to Christ. Would you join me in Acts chapter 6? We'll pick up in verse 1. And I'll tell you when we're to make a jump into the text in just a second. It says this, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and also some from Cilicia and Asia. And they were beginning to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so that they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. There they also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses had handed down to us. And all who were sitting on the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and saw that his face was like that of an angel. Are these things true? The high priest asked. Now, if you would, loved ones, skip ahead with me to Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. It says this, When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they yelled at the top of their voices. They covered their ears and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. So loved ones, for several weeks now, we have seen where the opposition against the church and acts is increasing. It's growing more and more. It's all building to a head. And we see that trend continue here. The pressure against the church is coming to a boiling point. And it's at this moment that Luke focuses our attention upon Stephen. Now, we were just introduced to Stephen for the first time, just a couple of verses before this, in chapter 6, verse 5. And there, we're told that he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and that he was among the seven men selected as deacons to help the apostles with the work of the daily distribution. And here, beginning in chapter 6, verse 8, we see in Stephen what the members of the early church saw. We see that Stephen 
was an incredible example of Christ-likeness. And Luke shows us that this was revealed in three ways. First, we see that Stephen was out performing great signs and wonders among the people. Like Peter and the apostles, Stephen was filled with the Spirit in a way that allowed him to reflect to others the power of Christ. And in addition to his duties with the daily distribution, we see that Stephen was out among the masses. He was preaching and teaching, and he was doing signs and wonders to help other people see the kingdom of Christ all around them and to bring glory to God, just in the same way that Christ had done his signs and wonders. But we see with that, as with Jesus, in the same way that Jesus was opposed by people for performing his signs and wonders, we see that Stephen's actions also aroused interest and opposition. Just like the Pharisees would come to Jesus and say to him that God can only work in certain ways and by certain means, we see that Stephen finds himself also being opposed. And Luke tells us that the hotbed of opposition against Stephen was the Freedmen's Synagogue, a congregation founded in Jerusalem many years before this by a group of men who had been formerly who had formerly been slaves. And Luke tells us that the men in this congregation were largely transplants in Jerusalem, that they were Jews from all other walks and areas of the Roman Empire. There were some from Cyrene, there were some from Alexandria, there were those from Cilicia, and also some from Asia, or what we would call Turkey today. But what's interesting about this detail is this. The people opposing Stephen, as Luke points out to us, they would have been what we referred to last week as Hellenistic Jews. They were Greek-speaking Jews. And what's unique is this. Given his Greek name, we believe Stephen to also be a Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jew. And why I'm bringing this up, what's unique, what's important about that is this. We see here that Stephen's own people, the Hellenistic Jews, that they were against him. They were opposed to him, which reminds us once again of Christ and how his own people rejected him. But we see Stephen's Christ-likeness revealed in verse 10 in a third way, and that those who opposed him were unable to stand up to Stephen because of his wisdom and because of the spirit by whom he was speaking. They just could not outthink him or outpreach him. And this verse should make us think back to Matthew chapter 7. It should make us remember what the crowds thought to themselves as they listened to Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount. How there, the end of chapter 7, Matthew tells us that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teachings because he was teaching them like as one who had authority and not like one of their scribes. And if this is the case, then it's no wonder that Stephen's opponents could not stand up to him. For the same Jesus who taught with unmatched authority, this same Jesus was filling Stephen with his spirit and with his wisdom and enabling Stephen to preach and teach. We see here that Stephen was just a vessel by which the spirit of Christ could flow out among the people. And we see here, as Luke pointed out to us, three distinct ways in which Stephen thoroughly demonstrated Christ-likeness. 
But here's something I want us to point out here, just looking at the first couple of verses here. Other than this opposition from the Freedmen's Synagogue, what has Stephen's commitment to Christlikeness cost him? And the answer is, of course, nothing yet. Nothing at this point in the game. And as we know, faithfulness in the good times is one thing, but our true character, our true devotion is revealed when the screws are tightened and when the trials begin. So a skeptic might say, of course Stephen is committed to being Christ-like now. He's just been made a deacon. He's out doing signs and wonders among the people. He is, all of his opponents are unable to stand up against him. They cannot match him for his wisdom. But what is Stephen going to do when things get bad? How committed will Stephen be when everything begins falling apart? And we will find out in just a moment. But before we go further, we have to examine ourselves. And we have to ask ourselves if someone off the street were to see us carrying on, if they were to just witness us living out our daily lives, would they see examples of Christ-likeness in us? We might not have signs and wonders to point to. So what would we then point to? Would people see Christ in us? Would Christ within us be evident to someone off the street? How would they know if they were simply to look at us and the way we live if we were followers of Christ or not? It makes me think of this uh, encounter I had many years ago, back when I was uh, in college. I remember being at a hockey game one Sunday afternoon, and during one of the intermissions, I went to the concession stand to get something to eat. And as I was going back to my seat, I saw two men walking toward me down the concourse. And immediately when I saw them, I could identify who they were and what they believed in just by their outward appearance. They had long curls, they had a beard that was better than mine, and they had long black gowns on. I knew instantly that they were Hasidic Jews, and I knew what they believed. But the the thought that I've had that has haunted me ever since then was this. When those two men saw me, was there anything about me that would have revealed to them who I was and what I believed? Did they just see some other Gentile kid getting a hot dog going back to his seat? Or did they see something in me that revealed to them that I was a follower of Christ? Loved ones, Christ within us must be evident if we are seeking to be Christ-like. And as we've said before, we must be committed to being Christ-like now in the easy times if we are also going to be committed to Christ when the pressure is increased. So are we doing that, loved ones? Are we committed to being like Christ now? But more importantly, is this commitment evident to those around us. But as we move on to verse 11, we see how this scene escalates. But before we jump into that portion of the scene, I simply want to remind us of the words of Jesus 
I want to remind us of how Jesus told us that such things would come and that we must expect them. For example, Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, Look, I am sending you like sheep among the wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and be innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. And then verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. But if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will the members of his household be called that? And again, I want to bring this up to remind us that Jesus told the twelve and through the scriptures he has told us today that we are to expect hostility toward the gospel. This world is in rebellion against God, and because of that, it will also be opposed to those who are submitted to God. And if Christ is indeed our master, and if we are seeking to be his disciples, then we must expect the world to treat us as it treated him. This is all stuff that Jesus has taught us and prepared us for. So we cannot be caught off guard when such things arise. But going back to the story of Stephen, we see here, starting in verse 11, that Stephen's opponents are not content to allow him to continue ministering. And since they cannot outthink him or outpreach him, they have to find another way of stopping him. So they come up with phony blasphemy charges. They find false witnesses that will say anything to put Stephen away, and they even get a mob of people riled up so that they will go and forcefully seize Stephen and bring him before the Sanhedrin. And everything that Luke is describing here for us is so overwhelmingly familiar. If we simply were to close our eyes and recount these details, we would know that we have seen the scene take place before. The reason for that is simple. This is just like the trial of Jesus. So much so that it's even the same charges against Stephen, the charge of blasphemy, that we remember Christ was also charged with himself. But I want you to notice something very telling in verse 11. Notice that those who were accusing Stephen say that they heard Stephen speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And please, please, please notice the order there. Moses first, the tradition first, the law first, then God. There is a complete failure and priority. But not only that, we remember in the scriptures that blasphemy usually most frequently refers to speaking slanderously against God or to belittling God. And yet here these men say that Stephen is blaspheming Moses as if, as if he had a godlike quality that could be blasphemed. And never mind the overarching fact that these men, these people here who are opposing God, and their simple elevation of Moses in importance over God, all of this is blasphemous in and of itself. But all of that is beside the point because we see that Stephen is unjustly seized and he is unjustly brought before the Sanhedrin just as Christ was. 
Keep in mind now, this is the mob from the Freedmen's Synagogue who was doing all of this. The Sanhedrin did not seek Stephen out. If you remember back in chapter 5, the Rabbi Gamaliel told the Sanhedrin, leave the church alone. Let's see what happens. It's, if it's of God, we don't want to fight against it. But if it's of man, it will fall apart itself. It appears that up until this point, the Sanhedrin had been following Gamaliel's advice until Stephen is brought before them. And so we see that Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, and we see that there are two charges against him, two things that he is being accused of. Number one, blaspheming God and Moses. And number two, teaching that Jesus will destroy the temple and that he will destroy or change the customs given down by Moses. When the, the Sanhedrin asks Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1, are these things true? These are the things that they are referring to. These are the charges that they are questioning. This is what Stephen must refute and attempt to defend himself against. But notice something beautiful here. Notice now that he is here before the Sanhedrin, now that he is on trial for his life, Luke tells us, that Stephen's face was like that of an angel. And we might be scratching our heads wondering, what on earth does this mean? Well, loved ones, this is an echo from the Old Testament. This makes us, in our minds, go back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. There we remember Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he's carrying the tablets of the law with him. And we're told there that Moses is face was shining brightly, that his face was radiating. It was reflecting the glory of God, so much so that no one dared come near Moses, shining so much that he had to wear a veil over his face. And Luke presents us this incredible detail about Stephen so that we will understand and recognize something awesome. But we also will recognize something incredibly ironic. That being that these men who so revered Moses that they could not see this connection to Moses right before them. And they were unable to recognize this connection to Moses because they failed to recognize and realize that one greater than Moses had come. They failed to realize that the one Moses and the law had pointed to, the Messiah, Jesus, they failed to realize who he was. And since they could not see Jesus, they could not see here how Stephen was emulating Moses. But as we go to the back end of this scene, to its tragic conclusion in verses 54 through 60, we can infer that something incredible and something groundbreaking takes place between verses 1 and 54 of chapter 7. Because the scene we see at the close of this chapter is a far cry from what we see at the beginning of this chapter. When this chapter opens up, we see the Sanhedrin sitting intently before Stephen, looking at him. But when we get to the end of this chapter, we see how these same men are acting more like beasts than humans. And they are brutally and unjustly killing Stephen. But in this horrific climax, we see painfully before us the price of Christlikeness. We see that ultimately, 
our seeking to live like Christ, that that might require us to die like Christ. And what's truly powerful about Stephen's death scene is this. It's how completely at odds these two group of people are in their behavior. We see the Sanhedrin and other who were pre others who were present with them shrieking and gnashing their teeth and yelling. All the while, Stephen is composed and he's gazing into heaven. He sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at God's right hand. And that phrase that Stephen utters in verse Verse 56 calls to mind words of Jesus from his trial. If you remember Matthew 26, 64 says this, Jesus told him, I tell you in the future, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and him coming on the clouds in heaven. Now we asked a few moments ago, if Stephen would continue being Christ-like when the intensity and when the pressure was increased. And we see here that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. We see that in the face of death, Stephen remains committed. He is ready and prepared to pay the price for Christ-likeness without any hesitancy or reservation. And not only that, not only is Stephen ready to die for Christ-likeness, he is also ready to be Christ-like in his death. I hope you caught what Stephen said as his final words. His final set of words mirror the final words of Jesus on the cross. We remember how Jesus prayed for those who were killing him. As he remember how he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here we see Stephen pleading with the Lord, pleading with Jesus not to hold this sin against those who were committing it. We remember how on the cross, Jesus cried out to the Father for him to receive his spirit before he breathed his last. And here we see Jesus crying, crying out to the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit as the crowds hurled stones upon him. Everything, loved ones, about Stephen's death scene, about his martyrdom, reminds us of Jesus's crucifixion. We see this man who was so Christ-like in his life, but he is also being Christ-like in his death. And then Luke tells us that after Stephen spoke his last, he fell asleep. And I believe, loved ones, that this is more than simply a euphemism for death. Luke is doing something more here than simply telling us that Stephen died. Stephen did indeed die that day, but I believe that Luke is here communicating to us that the Lord gave Stephen such peace in this moment that death and the horrific scene that was befalling him, that those things did not faze him in the slightest. Stephen fell peacefully asleep amid the hell that was breaking out around him, only so he could awake in glory before his Lord and his God. Eugene Peterson writes, Stephen had no eyes for effects or results or the opinions of the crowd. He was a simple servant who looked to his master and who was confident of his reception in heaven. We see here in this scene that Stephen's willingness to pay the price for Christ-likeness 
was rewarded by Christ with a peaceful transition into heaven. And that is powerful. That's comforting. That is reassuring for us today. But loved ones, Stephen's death is also important and significant for another reason as well. Because it reminds us that God can bring good out of even the most tragic and most horrific situations. Because we see present at Stephen's death that day, someone that you and I as Gentiles, someone we owe a great deal debt to. We see present that day a man who would go to his own death years later in order to see to it that Gentiles heard the gospel of Jesus and to see to it that Gentiles were welcomed into the family of God. We see present at Stephen's martyrdom a man named Saul, or as we know him better, Paul. And as we go further in Acts, we will see where Paul becomes an important figure to follow. But as we step out of the text today, and as we step back into our own world, we have to understand a simple fact. Before we can even think about dying for Christ, loved ones, we must first commit to living like Christ. And as we close today, loved one, you might be asking yourself, a question. You might be asking if we can even live like this today. Is it possible for us to live out Christ-likeness in the way that Stephen did? And if this is the question that you are asking, I want to respond with a question. I want to ask you, what's keeping us from living this way? What aspect of being like Christ is too hard? And which facet of our lives is Christ-likeness too difficult? What about Christ and being like Christ are we not committed to? Where in our lives are we saying, in the words of the famous rock star Meatloaf, I'll do anything for Christ, but I won't do that. And if that is our approach to living, do we see how sinful and disobedient such a thought is? Do we see the hypocrisy in that kind of thinking? Loved ones, today I want to ask, what if we sought to live like Christ in every area of our lives? What if we were like Christ with those people who are hard for us to love, with individuals who are not like us? What if we were like Christ in the way we prioritized our time? What if we were Christ-like in the way that we spent our money? What if we were Christ-like in the ways that we think and act? What if we were Christ-like in all of those areas of our lives where we settle for less than Christ-likeness? Loved ones, what if we were Christ-like both when everyone is watching and also when no one is watching? What would our lives look like then? What would our churches look like then? What would our community look like then? So loved ones, today I say, let us get rid of whatever it is that's keeping us from committing to fully living like Christ, to from committing fully to Christ-likeness. Let us take all of our idols and let us cast them down and let us seek to live like Christ. 
Let us seek to love like Christ. Let us seek to serve like Christ. And loved ones, so be it if need be to also dying like Christ as well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the example of Stephen, for the example of someone who was faithful and committed to Christ-likeness in his time and in his place. And Lord, help us to see how we might be as well. Father, give us eyes that are ready to examine our hearts. Help us to be receptive and submitted to you. And help us to see, Lord, the places, the things in our lives that we need to be rid of that are keeping us from being like Christ. Father, mold us more and more into the image of Christ. And give us a will that is more and more like Christ's will. And help us to be faithfully obedient to whatever it is that you call us to do. May we be found ready to humbly faithfully, dutifully do whatever you call us to do. Father, we love you and we thank you for Christ and it's in his name we pray. Amen.